Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, I'm very grateful. It's good to be back with you, by the way. I haven't been with you in a little while. If you don't have a card, an Esther card, could you raise your hand? Because we're going to reference it a lot. And we'll make sure everybody has one. There's a young lady. I see you. I see you. All right, very good. So I haven't been with you for a little while. Uh, and we haven't been doing a verse by study for a little while because we finished up the book of Matthew. Then we had a time of extended communion. Then we had Easter. And Kevin Tallickson shared last week with you while I was uh, on vacation. And so it was just a real pleasure to be able to sit and hear Kev teach on the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I hope you were encouraged by that. I certainly was. Uh, And today, as I said, we're going to jump to the book of Esther. So one of the things that we've been doing, we do go verse by verse through the Bible, but we don't necessarily start on page one and go all the way through to the end. And so we'll spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament, then we'll flip over to the New Testament. We'll kind of go back and forth in that way. And so after spending a year and a half in the New Testament in Matthew, we're now going to go back to the Old Testament. If you've been with us for a little while, we've studied First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. We've studied Ezra. We've studied Nehemiah. And now we're moving into the historical book uh, of Esther. So if you haven't done so, start looking there. If you have no idea where Esther is found in your Bibles, uh, there's this cool thing in the front, your table of contents. Nobody is proud. Just go ahead and look at the table of contents, and you can find it in that regard. Take out your bookmark. Could I have a bookmark? Do you have one? Yeah, you got one. So take out your bookmark there. We've created this. Here we are. We're dropping into the middle of a historical study. And so we wanted to give you a little context of where we are in history. Are we talking about the days of Abraham? Are we talking about the days of Moses? Are we talking about the days of David? So we thought that this would be a little helpful uh, there for you. A couple of, there's a number of different dates on this timeline. The first one I want to draw your attention to is the beginning. So if you look there at the beginning, it says 536 B.C. That is the end of the 70-year captivity the Babylonian captivity. And so you recall that there were two subsequent captivities of the Jewish people. There was what was called the Assyrian captivity, which primarily dealt with those that were living in the northern section of Israel. Remember, the nation had divided in the civil war. And so the northern portion, they called that Israel. They were taken away into the Assyrian captivity. And that began around 722 B.C. That's not on your timeline. The second captivity extended all the way down into the southern portion of Israel, which at that time was called Judah, and that's the Babylonian captivity. And in that captivity, captivity, the empire of Babylon came in and took the Jewish people away and took them away for a period of about 70 years. Now, there were some phases to that captivity. So they came in initially around 605 and brought some of the people away, Daniel, for instance, Then they come in around 597, they take some more Jewish people away, Ezekiel, for instance. And then finally, they destroy Jerusalem, and they pretty much take everybody away, and that's 586 B.C. And they're going to be taken away into this period of captivity. Well, that first phase of captivity starts to come to an end, as you see on your timeline here, in 536 B.C., because the Babylonian Empire, which had been ruling the entire world, comes itself to get captured or destroyed. And they are replaced, as far as a world empire is concerned, by an empire that reigned just for a little bit of time, which was called the Medo-Persian Empire. And we have that recorded for us in the book of Daniel. 
And so you can see on the screen there, Daniel chapter 5, it says, That very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, that's the Babylonians, the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so the Medo-Persian Empire, was they were two people groups that were in the area today of Iran, Persia. They were in that area. The Medes and the Persians, they combined briefly. Darius was in charge of the Mede portion of that empire. And then eventually the Medes sort of faded away and the Persian Empire began to rule the world for like 250 years or so. Okay, so when the Babylonians were defeated, Darius was the one involved with that. He was the head there of the Medes. The, the entire empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, eventually the Persian Empire, that was initially ruled by a guy named Cyrus the Great. And you may have heard the name Cyrus in your history book. Certainly his name is mentioned in the Bible. There's actually a prophecy about Cyrus 150 years before he came on the scene where his name is used and shown to him in the scripture. You can imagine the impact of that, that his name was written 150 years before he even came on the scene. And so it is that Cyrus that gave a decree that though the Jewish people were still captives of Persia, just as they were captives of the Babylonians, he gave a decree that said, look, as long as you're willing to be our subjects, you can live anywhere you want to live. You want to go back to Jerusalem, live in Jerusalem, go back and live in Jerusalem. But just make sure you understand you're our subjects. And so he gave a decree that the Jewish captives could go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding their temple, if that's what they wanted to do. And a number of people took him up on it. We read of that decree. It's in the book of Ezra. So this is a little bit of a review of some of the stuff we've studied before historically. It's been almost two years since we've looked at it. In Ezra chapter 1, it says this. Thus says, king, the, says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has changed, or charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people... May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God uh, in Jerusalem. And so the aspect of that statement is where it says there, whoever is among you, it, it should be worded, whoever among you would like to. They all didn't have to go. They could have stayed there in captivity, in, specifically if they wanted to, wherever it had been, they had been taken to. And that year we know, it says again in verse 1, was in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And historically, we know when the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia was. It was 536 B.C. And so on your timeline, the very first thing that you have there is the Babylonian captivity comes to an end, 536 B.C. And the people begin now to go back, some of them do, go back and rebuild the temple. Now, you read the book of Haggai, you read the book of Ezra, what you'll discover is that temple rebuilding process didn't just go straight through, that there were stops and starts and they were doing well and then they took a break for a little while there. Uh, and the prophet Haggai speaks into that. You can read that book if you would like. And so the temple is finally completed, as you see on your timeline, in 516 B.C. So it didn't actually take 20 years to rebuild the temple but with all the stops and starts, that's how long it took. And that event, if you want to read about the temple and what got in the way and why they stopped and started, you can read the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra chapter 6 tells us about the temple being completed, the temple being dedicated. So that's the book of Ezra. Remember that? Wasn't that fun? We did that? 
We could have just done it in, in 10 minutes if uh, we did a speed version like this. Then we, have, then we went into the book of Nehemiah, which do, it's after the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah primarily deals with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So first things first, we're going to get our place of worship back to up and running. And then we're going to rebuild the walls of the city and the city itself so that people can live in this particular city. And the book of Nehemiah deals with that. So if you look at your timeline there, the book of Nehemiah is all the way at the other end of the timeline. And so you see some of the events that are on there. It says in 446 BC, the walls of Jerusalem uh, that were destroyed are rebuilt once again. 445, Artaxerxes I gives permission to Nehemiah uh, to go back and start rebuilding those walls. Okay, so that's the other end. Now in your Bible, it's Ezra and it's Nehemiah, and yet you have one way over here, and you got one way over there on our timelines. Right in the middle of those events is what we have the book of Esther. So the book of Ezra, approximately 515 B.C., the book of Nehemiah, approximately 445 B.C., and in between those, as you see on the timeline, is the story of Esther. In fact, if you want to be more specific, right between chapter 6 of Ezra and chapter 7 of Ezra is the information for, for the book of Esther. That's where it fits uh, chronologically there. And so that puts us right around the year 485 B.C., okay? And I, I was trying to figure, why did they do that? Like when they were putting the Bible together and organizing it, which books are going to go where, why did they put Esther after Nehemiah when it comes before chronologically Nehemiah? And the only thing I could come up with, I didn't see any reason, nobody else is asking that question apparently but me, uh, and uh, it seems as if because Ezra chapters 1 through 6 deals with this time period over here, uh, roughly around 515 B.C., and then chapter 7 to 10 deals more with the time nearer to ne Nehemiah, that it seems like we'll just continue right through Nehemiah. Oh, and by the way, there was this other story, let me tell you about it, and that's the book of Esther. How's that? Pretty good? You're going to go with that? All right, that's what we'll go with. All right, let's jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1, it introduces us from the start to a man by the name of Ahasuerus. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, so to clarify, lest you be confused with another, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now I said there was a man by the name of Ahasuerus. In reality, Ahasuerus is not his name, it's actually his title. It's a term like pharaoh, it's a term like emperor, and sometimes it becomes synonymous with the person's name, and so they just, be, they just become referred to as pharaoh, you know, the pharaoh of Egypt or whatever. And so Ahasuerus is the man's title. It roughly translates to venerable king. And so the venerable king Ahasuerus, his actual name we know historically is Xerxes. Now, there were a number of Xerxes in the Persian Empire. So this is Xerxes I, sometimes referred to as Xerxes the Great. He was the fourth king of this Persian Empire. Now, there was a couple of kings that ruled for like a month here, and they had, I think, four in one year or whatever. So I'm just going to put them out. All right, so he's the fourth significant line of kings in this Persian Empire. Historically, this empire... And I always get it until I forget it, but it's the Achaemenid Empire. Does that sound good, history people? All right. It sounds like it. All right, we'll go with that. Uh, so in secular history, 
This is the Achaemenid Empire. It ruled from 559 B.C. to 330 B.C. And he's the fourth of a series of empires, maybe tw- emperors, 20 years or so. So uh, that puts him around 485. And it's during his empire, or his reign, that the empire likely was at its zenith, its most powerful point. And if you look at verse 1 again, it says that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And so we have a map here just to give you a kind of an idea of the extent of the empire. Uh, this over here would be northern Africa, Ethiopia. This way over here is India. Now, I saw differing uh, maps. Some show the empire including India. Uh, some show it up to India. And the verse there, I think you could kind of read it one or the other. It says, from India to Ethiopia. So does that mean it includes it or not? Don't necessarily know. But you, you basically have all of the area of the Middle East. You're heading up into the area of Europe. You have parts of Africa there. This was a vast empire. 127 different provinces in it. Multiple languages that are in it. It was one of the, lar- it was one of the world ruling empires of history. Uh, the Archimedes Empire, Persian Empire. And it's included in our Bible, which is odd, quite honestly. It's odd that this story would be found there for a number of different reasons. One, it reveals to us sort of the inner workings and occurrences of a foreign pagan empire and the the events that went on in that particular empire. That is one. It just so happens to have some Jewish folks that are there in the empire and they inadvertently end up taking some significant roles Uh, in the story. It just so happens that the Jewish people that are found in this story end up saving the entire race of the Jewish people. That's pretty significant. We can understand why that would be in our Bible. It doesn't take place in Israel. It doesn't take place anywhere near Israel. Verse 1 tells, or verse 2 I should say, says that it takes place in the city of Susa. The city of Susa was about eight or nine hundred miles away from Israel, from Jerusalem. We've learned about it before. If you look at this map here, I have two different circles. Susa's over here. This is uh, Israel there. You would think, well, I can just shoot right across. Well, because of the desert conditions, you couldn't, so you had to follow that fertile crescent. And so that makes this trip some seven or 800 miles, eight or 900 miles. It's a significant trek to go from one uh, to the other. Susa, you may recall, we looked at when we were studying the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is serving in a key role in Susa some 50, 60 years after the book of Esther, and he is there in Susa. So we spent some time uh, considering that. So as I said, I, I think the book, it's a surprise to find it in our Bibles. It's not based in Israel, but rather in a foreign empire close to a thousand miles away. What you might also find surprising, the name of God is never mentioned at all in the book of Esther. So why do we have a book in our Bible that doesn't even mention the name of God. That seems peculiar uh, to me. What's also I find interesting, nowhere is reference made to or spoken of, the word used, prayer. Nowhere in there do we have anything about Jewish sacrificial feast or anything like that. It seems to be a book that is devoid of God as far as outside references uh, to him. And the only reason that the events are occurring, now hear this one, The only reason that the events are occurring that we have recorded for us in our Bible is because the Jews that are living there in Susa decided not to go back to Jerusalem when they were given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. 
And as we spent some time considering in Ezra, part of the reason why, there was two reasons why the Jews did not go back, those that didn't. And again, there was close to two and a half million Jews in captivity. About 50,000 went back to Jerusalem. The rest did not go back. Some of them didn't go back because they were too old. We know that Daniel was about 90 years old. He's not going to go on a 1,000-mile march to get back to Jerusalem. So some of them didn't go back for that reason. But the vast, vast majority did not go back to Israel because they were comfortable in their captivity. I don't want to have to go back to some place that I'm going to have to rebuild. I'm comfortable here in my captivity. It may not be ideal, but I'm comfortable here. I like it here. I don't want to go back uh, to Israel. And yet this book is about those individuals. Essentially, individuals that are living in rebellion or had made a rebellious choice in their walks with God, this story is about God's preservation and protection of those people. And so again, earlier I mentioned that Cyrus gave a decree allowing the Jewish people to go back. Some of them do. The vast majority of them don't. And because of their unwillingness to leave the relative comforts of captivity, that decision puts them directly in the crosshairs of the enemy. And ultimately, the great enemy, Satan. And yet, here we have a, a book about God's looking out for them. And I find it fascinating. Seemingly, God is absent in the book. Yet, if you read through the book, God's all over the book. Every page, he's there. So his name's not mentioned, prayer's not mentioned, sacrificial feasts aren't mentioned, and yet God is all over the book. As a matter of fact, the first time somebody pointed out to me that God's name isn't used once in the book, I didn't believe them. You remember Arnold Drummond? Remember him? Some of you old people? Arnold Drummond, what you talking about, Willis? Remember him? You don't remember him. Okay. Well, anyway, thank you very much. Well, Arnold Drummond would say, what you talking about, Willis? That was his brother. And that's basically the response I had when someone said that God is never mentioned in the book because I had just read the book. We talking about he's not mentioned. He's on every page of the book. The reality is his name is never mentioned, but you see him behind the scenes. And that I find to be very, very encouraging, and I'll tell you why. It's because in a place where God should not have been, quote unquote, a thousand miles away in a foreign empire ruled by pagan deities, you know, in their estimation, with a group of people that are living in rebellion and like captivity than the promises of God, more so, that he shows up in that particular place. I just find that to be very, very encouraging uh, for me. It reminds me that the Lord is present in the circumstances of man, even in those places where the Lord shouldn't be, quote-unquote. And so someone might say, hey, look, this is a secular college campus. God is not welcome here. Well, does that sound about right to you, Miss Alyssa? They might say that, but the reality is good luck with that, that God's not welcome on a secular college campus. Most of us, many of us here, got saved on a secular college campus. God is certainly welcome in those places. Some might say, hey, look, we are a government organization, and we hold to the strict separation between church and state. And I would suggest to you God's response is that, well, let me know how that goes, because I'm going to come into the midst of those circumstances there. Even in those places where God should not be, as some define it, he nonetheless, nevertheless, is all over those pages. And that excites me as a believer, because what that means is, when I go to my kids, and my kids are older now, but when I go to my kids' Little League baseball game, that's just a Little League, it's just some kids having fun or whatever, what that tells me is even in the midst of that secular place, 
that the Lord is right there in the midst of that and providing opportunities for, for me to minister and for others to minister to me. When I go to my place of business, well, I, I work for a secular organization. I don't work for a church or a ministry or something like that. And so I just go to my job and I do what I have to do. No, the Lord is in the midst of that. And he goes in there with you as you minister, the neighborhood you live in, when you gather with your unsaved family and friends and your relatives. There's no place that we go that God has not gone before us. And he's not navigating those circumstances according to his will. And I think what we need to do is simply kind of wake up, open up our eyes, realize I'm in the midst of this. Like you're going to see Esther will say a little bit later, for such a time as this, the Lord brought me into this kingdom. And so I'm at this place of business where I work for such a time as this. The Lord brought me and no doubt another 10 or 15 other co-workers that are scattered about this place for this purpose. I'm in this school for this purpose to be a light for Christ. For such a time as this, he has raised me up. And so there's no place that I go that God has not gone before me. And, and such knowledge just enthuses me to the mission opportunity I have on a daily basis. I said this a little while ago. When we go overseas to a foreign mission, or it's Saturday morning and we're going down to Trenton, we're going to evangelize, or it's a Saturday night and we're going to the boardwalk, or to Princeton and we're going to witness, or we're going to do a VBS for the kids, whatever it may be, we come to that circumstance and we're ready. Who, who wants to know about Jesus? I'm telling someone about it. You know, and we're ready. We're going to tell somebody. But we don't think that way when we go to school, or when we go to work, or when we go out to get the newspaper and we run into the lady across the street. I think we should, because the Lord's in those, and he's giving us opportunities if we would think that way and work that way. So let's look at the book of Esther, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace." So you have this guy, Ahasuerus, that's his title. This is actually Xerxes. As it says, he rules from the provinces of India to Ethiopia. That's 7.5 million square miles they estimate, estimate that he ruled over. It's a huge area of reign. We read in the verse there that it was during the third year of his reign. So he began ruling in 485. So that puts us around 483, 482. That it was during that third year of his reign that he called together, he had a huge feast. They, they number the feast that over a thousand people or more had come to this particular feast. They would gather together in the capital city. Now the author, we don't know who the author is. Tradition tells us it's Mordecai, but we don't necessarily know. But the author tells us and he informs us that this feast was among other things for the purpose of showing off the empire's wealth and its glory, and its splendor, and its pomp. I don't know how you show off pomp, um, but that's what he did. He showed off pomp, ceremony, whatever that may have looked like. We also learned that the party went on for 180 days. So it's a six-month-long party. I've had picnics that went for like four hours, 
And I'm like, so when y'all leaving? You know what I mean? Like, it's been four hours. I've, I've used up all my talking conversation. It's time for everybody to go or whatever. 108, that's not true. I've heard other people say stuff like that. I love when you're there at my house. 180 days is a long time. Now, that may mean that it was a 180-day party, or it might mean it was sort of like an open house, start gathering, you know, and, and people travel. It takes two months to get there, um, but as long as they're there by the end of that time, whatever, we don't know for certain necessarily. But we do know historically, so we read in the Bible, it says to show off the wealth, the splendor, the glory, the pomp. Historically, we know what Xerxes was trying to do was show off to all of his officials the wealth and the glory of his empire because he was preparing to go into a major battle that he needed to convince all of his governors or whatever, we're going to go into this battle, we have the resources, we can win this thing, and it's going to be great. And so historically, that was his purpose uh, for gathering all these people. Somebody has said, you know, how much is enough? Well, for a guy like Xerxes, the answer to that question is just a little bit more. He ruled 7.5 million square miles of the world, and he wanted just a little bit more. What he wanted was the area of Greece. Now, we know Greece. Greece went on to be a historically great empire in the history of the world, but not at this time. At this time, Greece was a relatively small, almost like what Greece is today. If you can picture that on a map, the space that it occupies today, that's about what Greece was at that particular point in time. But Xerxes wanted Greece, and he wanted, through Greece, have access into Europe. And so he's preparing for this big battle. It's uh, actually called the Battle of Thermopylae which it reminds me of that movie. What's that lady again? I told you last night. Genovia, Princess, what's it? Anne Hathaway, you know that movie? Didn't she like rule over Thermopylae or something like that? See, you know it. You have children. Yeah. And so anyhow, um, it's a real battle. It's called the Battle of Thermopylae. It took place in 480 B.C. If you've seen the movie or you've heard of the movie that was called 300 years ago that came out, that was the Battle of Thermopylae. It was a battle between Greece and Persia. Essentially, the king of Persia at the time was Xerxes. And so Xerxes' objective was to expand this empire, and he wanted to let his princes and his officials know, we have all the resources in the world. We can throw a 180-day party with all sorts of food and drink and everything that you could imagine to take care of the, the cost of that particular party. And we're about to go into battle. You guys with me? Who's with me? You know, this sort of thing. Now, it says at the end of six months, verse 5 says that the king transitions the feast from all the officials to everyone in the city. And there in the verse it says, both small and great were now welcomed in. They opened up the doors of the, the palace, I guess you might say, and both small and great were ushered into that seven-day feast. Now, seven days compared to 180 days seems kind of, you know, lousy or whatever, but a seven-day feast is nonetheless still a significant uh, period of time. No expenses paired, uh, spared, verse 6, let me read it to you. It says, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened uh, with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic payment of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, no paper cups, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. 
For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. If anybody asks you for something, give them whatever they want. All right, so no expense is spared. Pay particular attention. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says that drinks were served in the royal, uh, in the golden vessels. If you look at verse 7, it says the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. You look at verse 8, it says the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And we know historically, there's record of this party, the party very quickly got out of control. The instructions of the king were give each man according to his desire. Anything goes. Whatever anybody wants, they can have. And very quickly, anything goes descended down into the depths of lasciviousness. It descended down into the depths of debauchery and immorality. This was some party. It Really, it's been described as a, a drunken orgy of sin is how the party is described historically. Not even by like Christian people. Oh my. You know, just regular sinners are like, oh my gosh, this place is nuts. Already? And so that's, uh, that's pretty significant. Now, in verse 9, what the author points out is that at the same time that this party is going on, that there's another little party that is going on over here. And I sort of picture it like this having like head-banging rock music or whatever, and this one having like Victorian harpsichords or whatever playing over here. So on this side over here, you have the craziness, and over here you have a party that Queen Vashti, the queen of the, the uh, empire, that she's throwing for the ladies. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And that's information going to be significant in a little while. All righty, verse 10. Now on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Seven-day feast, seven days of drinking, seven days of debauchery. The verse says there that the king, uh, his heart was merry with wine. That means he was drunk. The king was drunk. And he decides at that time it would be a good idea to bring his wife into the midst of this insanity. Let's bring my wife in to this crazy party that we're having. And as we read in verse 12, Queen Vashti refuses to come. And I would add, wisely, Queen Vashti refuses to come. Not unlike many Middle Eastern cultures today, modesty was highly prized and expected among the women of society. And so here you have now a king under the influence of alcohol who throws propriety to the side and summons his wife to come in to show off her beauty in front of all these drunk, sensual guys that are gathered, thousand uh, drunk, sensual guys that have been gathered and have been partying all week. Many commentators believe that when it says that he summons Queen Vashti to come before the king with the royal crown, that that's all that she was supposed to come before the king with, naked with just a crown upon her head. And so if there's any doubt whether the king was drunk, this should dispel all doubt. Because essentially, as he's sitting there with his friends, he says this. He said, ooh, I know what would be fun. 
let's bring my naked wife to stand in before a thousand drunken men. That's the idea that he comes up with that he thinks will be a fun idea for the evening. I think it's a stupid idea, and I hope you do as well. You'll notice it's an idea that was entirely born out of the king's drunkenness. And if I, just may, if I can make a comment on alcohol for a minute, I don't know, for my own personal walk with Jesus Christ, not because I'm the pastor of some church, for my own walk with Jesus Christ, I don't know of anything good that comes from the f- free flow of alcohol. I don't know anything good that comes from the free flow of alcohol. And there's a lot of debate these days within the Christian church as to whether a follower of Christ should drink or a follower of Christ shouldn't drink. And in my issue, and in my walk, certainly, and if you ask my opinion, I'll give you my advice, but in my walk with Jesus, I think the issue is pretty straightforward. The Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. So you better not be going that far, because it says it very clearly, Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. Oh, good, I don't like wine. I like my heart liquor, or whatever. No, it's talking about all of that, okay? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So drunkenness is off the table if you want to walk with Jesus. For those that are younger, I go off to college, it's all right, I can have a little drink or whatever. The Bible says to obey the laws of our land, which means underage drinking is off the table for the young person that's trying to walk with Jesus. It says in Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And our nation has decided that 21 is the age of drinking. And so if you're not at that age, you shouldn't even be drinking at all. Not even if it's just a sip to kind of stand with the other folks that are there. And so it addresses that. Now, but people ask this question, well, what about drinking in small amounts? Now, although drinking in moderation is not condemned in Scripture, there are many warnings about its destructive nature. Proverbs 20, for instance, it describes wine as a mocker and strong drink as a brawler. And then notice it says, and it leads people astray. That phrase, that it leads astray, it indicates that alcohol content has an effect on a person. And so you may not be drunk, but if you've been impacted by it, if you've been impaired by it, you've been affected by it. And I think that speaks to, you know, being buzzed or being tipsy or I just had a little bit, you know, of that feel or whatever it may be. Even if you're not fully blown drunk, I would suggest to you that verse is saying to you, you need to be careful and you need to be on your guard with this matter. The writer of Proverbs, he'll add this. He says, wine's a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now to put that in the converse, and it means the exact same thing, whoever is led astray by it is foolish. That's what it says. And so when you take a little sip here, a little sip there, you are bordering on the foolishness. Be careful. That's what Proverbs are all about, making wise decisions for the life that you live. Be very careful. Be on your guard. I hear hear people say, Christian people even, say this a lot. They'll say something like, oh boy, what a week. I need a drink. That's very disconcerting to hear that. Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, are you honestly saying, as a spirit-indwelt believer in Jesus Christ, are you honestly saying when you make that statement, there's nothing else that can get you through this week but a drink? It shouldn't be that way. And yet we hear it a lot. We may not say it like we really mean it. Maybe it's just something, oh boy, what are we going to drink? Or whatever. 
But think about what you're saying. It's interesting, I think, to note in Ephesians 5 that being filled with alcohol and being filled with the Holy Spirit are juxtaposed with one another. So 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's as almost if there's a comparison that is between the two. Now, I'm not saying if you take a sip of alcohol that you're, you no longer have the Holy Spirit in your life. That's not what I'm saying. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. But what I believe Paul is doing there is he's explaining how the Holy Spirit influences a person's life. Alcohol influences a person's life. And so you've seen the movies, and maybe you've seen ex examples of it in your own life. But when a person is under the influence of an alcohol or a drug or whatever it may be, they begin to talk differently. And it's almost comical on TV or whatever. They begin to walk differently. They begin to act differently. And as we see in the example of Xerxes, they begin to process things differently. Suddenly under the influence of alcohol, dragging my wife naked in front of a thousand drunken men is a good idea. Because you begin to process things differently under the influence. Well, similarly, the Holy Spirit affects the way we walk. He expects the words that come out of our mouth, or um, affects the words that come out of our mouth. We begin to process things differently when we're led by God's Holy Spirit. And so Paul compares these two here and the effects those two things could have on our life. Here's how I, because the Bible doesn't address every single issue in the, my day-to-day. -day. And so here's a verse that I look to to help me make decisions on matters like this. It's in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And when I first learned that verse early on in my walk with Christ, I learned it in a version that said, all things are permissible, but all things are not necessarily profitable. And what I want for my walk with Jesus are things that are going to be profitable in my walk with Jesus. Not things that are going to hold me back, but things that are going to propel me forward. And so in an instance like this, do we have liberty to consume small amounts of alcohol? Yeah, we, we do. The Bible doesn't come out and say you can't. People give the examples of Paul told Timothy to have a glass of wine. Now, Paul told Timothy to have a glass of wine because it was either that or some dirty water with bacteria, and he was having frequent, frequent stomach ailments, and he said, you should have some wine instead of the dirty water. But people look at that and say, oh, what? Was, was that clear? Did you get that? <laughs> Whatever. You know, and so people will come up with it, but we live in a very different age than then. So I don't even think you need that necessarily, but do you have the liberty to consume it? Yes, but is it profitable? Is it profitable or helpful for you in your walk with Jesus? And I think this is a very important thing. Is it profitable or helpful for other people's walk with Jesus that are observing you, your children that are observing you? That younger believer that's looking at you and, and they think, well, there's a guy or gal that seems to be walking with the Lord. I admire their relationship. I want to walk in the Lord in such a way. Is it helpful for them? Again, it may be permissible, but is it helpful for you and for others? And so this is a little aside. You thought we were going to do a cute story about Esther. A little aside here that we threw in for a little bonus. But seek the Lord in the matter. Let the Lord speak to your heart uh, about the issue. Now, our king here, Xerxes, he's got a problem. Oh, so do we. we got to get moving. The king has a little bit of a problem. Here he is. He's trying to impress all of his officials, all of these princes, all of these military leaders, thousands of them, of how great and powerful his empire is, how ready his empire is. We are so strong, we could take over the world and control it all. 
And as the incident shows, he can't even control his own wife. And so now he's in sort of this catch-22 where he's looking weak in the midst of it. We saw in verse 12 that Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. She refused to submit to his command. Now, I understand what Ephesians 5 says, and I am all uh, in support of, I understand it, I believe it's biblical, the idea of wives submitting to their husbands as we read, but not in circumstances like this. Not when a husband is calling his wife to do something sinful. There's no need to submit in a situation like that. And sadly, we hear people that talk about their sex life or whatever, and honey, let's watch pornography. It'll spice up our sex life. If the wife in that instance, no thank you. I'm not in it. Let's go down to the pastor, ask what he thinks about that issue, if we should do that. There are things you do not submit to your husband uh, in, and sin is what we're referring to. And so she says, no, she, she may have believed in submission, but I, no, I'm not coming for that. What the king is asking his wife to do is immoral. It's wrong, it's sinful, and she's under no um, obligation to comply. And so, yay for Vashti. She's taken a stand for righteousness. However, there are consequences oftentimes, when we take a stand for righteousness. And we read about that here in verse 13. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him, we mentioned their names before, Karshina, Shetha, Edmatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So didn't really know what to do. What's the law tell us we can do? He asked these advisors, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people, read that, all the men, who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, both high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. How about that? So, again... Why do I need to know what's going on in Persia? You know, it's just sort of some inner workings of this particular nation. Uh, you'll get it, don't worry, as we keep moving on. But here you have a king that is burning in anger, seeking the counsel of his closest officials. What should we do 
with Vashti. He, he senses the seriousness. This guy Memukin there as well. They sense the seriousness of the situation, the cataclysmic results that might occur. Pretty soon, no wife is going to be listening to her husband anymore. We got a problem, king. This guy Memukin, he suggests we need a royal order, a law that is given that removes Queen Vashti from her position. And again, his conclusion is that if Queen Vashti could get away with it, every woman in society was going to get away with it. Let's make a law requiring wives to listen to their husbands. No amens on that? Alrighty. But there's a good idea. If your wife will not submit to you, let's make a law that commands her to submit. Not a good idea. Married men, I certainly want to be careful with this statement, but I would say this. If you are having difficulties in areas of leadership in your marriage and the God-ordained roles that he called for the husband and wife within marriage, more often than not, the problem is not with your wife. More often than not, you need to look internal and see, is, is there a reason why my wife is not willing to submit to my leadership in the home? It's no coincidence, and, and that's not a universal rule. There are instances where there's a wife that just says, you know what, I'm doing whatever I want. I don't care what Jesus says or whatever, and a guy is trying to run with the Lord and do the best he can or whatever. But more often than not, and what I would say to anybody, and I'm talking to someone, we're having a lot of problems at home, it's terrible, or whatever. When I talk to someone, I say, look at yourself first. What's going on there? It's not a coincidence that the same verse that talks about wives submitting to their husbands in the New Testament also says these words. This is verse 25, so it's like two verses later. It, or It's in the same area. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for the church, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Christ went to the cross for the church. Christ got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples because of his love for the church. Christ cherished, as it speaks of here, cherished his wife, his bride, the church. And I think very few women would have difficulty submitting themselves to a husband that loved them in that way. And so here you have this king foolishly deciding, agreeing with Memukin that the way to get his wife in line was to make some law that required her to submit. We see in verse 22, letters were sent in every language and to every province. This is what they concluded, that every man is to be master in his, whole, in his own household. What a, this is not good. This is going to cause problems throughout the entire province. It, it is clearly a mess and the mess, you trace it back, you know, so now we're in a counseling appointment. Uh, all right, here we are today. How did we get here? Let's go back and let's look. You trace this mess all the way back. You have a king that is trying to press, impress others, and he gets himself involved in a feast of drunken debauchery. So we go back to that. In that drunkenness, he makes a foolish request, bringing his wife in in front of all the people. And then when she won't come in, in his drunkenness, he responds in anger and he 
sends forth this ridiculous uh, decree. It's no wonder. Proverbs 31 says, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. And so just imagine if the president or some, the governor or whatever, if they were out partying one particular evening, and then that evening, remember that commercial the, at 3 o'clock in the morning, who do you want to answer the phone? Remember that commercial? Well, what if the king or the queen or whomever is completely out of their mind drunk? We got a problem now. It's not for kings. It's not for uh, to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. And so you, you trace it all the way back. Here's the problems that you have. And you have a royal feast. This is the title of our message. A royal feast ending in a royal dispute. But why tell us about it? It's a foreign nation. What does this have to do with us as believers? What's it have to do with the Jewish people? Why include this marital dispute of a foreign king in a foreign land in the Hebrew Scriptures? And again, God was never mentioned in this entire chapter. And so, again, why do we have here this information? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. All right? We'll see you all next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word. And, Lord, I, I just do appreciate that even though your name is not mentioned, Lord, you're clearly in all of this. We can see you working in the circumstances, and certainly as we get a little bit further. And, Lord, that causes my heart, our heart, to rejoice because we know that you are in the midst of this increasingly secular nation that you're, in work, you're at work in all things, that you're moving the chess pieces around the board to put your people in the places where they can communicate your word to those whose hearts you have been preparing to receive your word. And Lord, that's just exciting for us. It, it, it tells us that the, the pond has been stocked with the fish that are ready. And so Lord, I do pray that you would just stir our hearts to communicate your love to, as we navigate the circumstances of life. Lord, to be ready for the opportunities that you might be presenting before us. Lord, to do the necessary steps, perhaps to sort of prepare ourselves for them when they might come, but to rely on your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we also looked at some challenging issues today. And I do pray that your Spirit would minister. Lord, certainly uh, that my words, uh, if they weren't any of your words, that you would kind of sift those out. But Lord, if your Holy Spirit was speaking through some of my words, that you would use that to convict and draw and to teach and to edify this body of believers. And Lord, it is, a, it is a privilege for us to be able to share life together, to run this race together for the time that you have us here on the earth. And Lord, we're praying that you would use us uh, for the furtherance of the gospel here in Mercer County, Bucks County, and around the entire world. Lord, it's an audacious prayer, but we believe it's the type of prayer that you answer, and so we pray it. Use us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.